0: Welcome to the missions podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman, and I'm joined by a number of exciting guests here today. And like many of you, we are quarantined. Many of us are spending time in our homes, but uh, we're excited to see how God uses this anyway. And normally, right now, we would be in Louisville for Together for the Gospel. And as much as we enjoy the fellowship that we have through that event, uh, God's given us the opportunity today instead to do something that we were planning for a long time, through the power of the web. And so I'm incredibly excited to discuss a couple things, not just about who the nations are, but also about how we can stay involved in missions, especially during a unique time of quarantine. It's a challenging topic. How can churches be missional right now when you can't even leave your home, much less the country with a lot of ease? And Scott, I know you're looking forward to this as well
1: as we dive in with our panelists today. Yeah, I mean, I can remember first hearing about some of these topics as a college student in a Bible college, and actually, it was a representative from ABWE that came out, and for the first time, I heard about the 1040 window and the idea of unreached people groups, and it kind of started my mind thinking in ways that I had never thought before about missions, even though I had grown up in pretty missions-minded churches. Uh, Like most of our listeners, you know, reading... John Piper's "Let the Nations Be Glad" and having my mind uh, challenged by some of those ideas, and uh, the, the topic we're going to talk about this this morning is the local church in the nations, and it really kind of started off of a couple of blog articles. Uh, Darren, of course, the great provocateur, uh, started with an article that he wrote in the Gospel Coalition. We'll talk about that in a second, and then uh, Brooks and uh, and um, Chad Chad Vegas responded, and uh, it was very, it's a good discussion for. Us to have? What are the nations? And then what is the local church and their response to it? And so we gathered a few of our good friends. And uh, we wish we were doing this live uh, in in Louisville. But I think this might be better in some ways and that we'll be able to go a little bit deeper on the topic. Uh, we want to thank our our sponsors for joining us that have been faithful, even though we 're not meeting in person. We hope that maybe the reach of this will be broader than we even meant we even thought it could be if we were doing a luncheon ABW international of course, radius international trend leaders international chosen people international, the gospel coalition. Cedarville University, Reaching and Teaching, and the Evangelical Council of Abuse Prevention are all sponsoring uh, this, and we're so grateful for that. Some of you are represented here in this uh, room and others are not, but we are so thankful for all of those organizations being a part of helping to get this out. And so now let's introduce our panel, Alex. Yeah, we love every one of these individuals
0: that we have, and we're grateful for the chance. First, we have John Clausen, Dr. John Clausen of Reaching and Teaching joining us, along with Darren Carlson, we've already talked about, president of Training Leaders International. We have ABWE's very own president, Paul Davis, also on the call, along with Matt Bennett, associate professor of missions and theology for Cedarville University. Brooks Busser, president of Radius International, who we've uh, talked about as well, who's a part of the initial conversation that started with the article, with Darren Carlson and with the response by Brooks and Chad Vegas. And finally, last but not least, uh, the person who is reeling from the chance to not go to the gym and the difficulty in working out during quarantine, we have none other than the IMB's vice president, Zane Pratt. And so we're excited to have each of you guys join us. And let me just start uh, in reverse order here. We'll start with Zane, just say a sentence or two about who you are, and I'll hand it off to the next person. Just remind our audience in one or two words, who you are, what you do, and then we'll dive in together.
2: Okay. as you said, I'm Zane Pratt, I serve as Vice President for Assessment, Deployment and Training with the International Mission Board. Uh, my wife and I served in Central Asia for 23 years before coming to this post, and I also teach uh, missions at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville.
0: Thanks, Zane. And uh, Brooks,
3: why don't you introduce yourself as well? Yeah, my name is Brooks Buzer. I serve as President of Radius International. My wife and I served overseas. In Papua New Guinea for 13 years, uh, we developed an alphabet, translated the bulk of the Old Testament and all the New Testament into a language group there and then returned to the U.S. in 2016 where we're serving at Radius currently. So that's chewing up the bulk of my time.
0: Thanks, Brooks. And Matt Bennett? I
4: have the privilege of serving as a, an assistant professor of uh, missions and theology. I appreciate the uh, uh, the... Uh, I guess raise promotion uh, promotion <laughs> yeah that's what we're looking Same for difference. there um, but uh, yeah I get to teach students and and mobilize them to the nations here at Cedarville University
0: there you go so you're you're president of the university now whatever it is you know we'll we'll give you a couple upgrades here while we're at it and uh, Paul Davis why don't you share who you are as well
5: I'm Paul Davis and I'm the president of BBWE uh, an organization 94 years old. And uh, I've been in ministry for our, my entire adult life in pastoral ministry, for missions and church planting, and uh, now have the privilege of serving ABWE.
6: And Darren Carlson, our resident provocateur. Uh, I'm also the president of Training Leaders International, but I guess I'm also the reason that uh, we're going to be arguing. So uh, grateful uh, to be Training Leaders International primarily does theological training in formal settings, but also uh, non-formal, middle-of-nowhere settings as well. And then John Klassen, Reaching
0: and Teaching.
7: I'm president at uh, Reaching and Teaching International Ministries. I also do some teaching at uh, Southern Seminary and Boyce College. My wife and I served in North Africa for 18 years working with Muslims in that region.
0: Well, gentlemen, thanks all for being here today. And Scott, why don't you start us off?
1: Well, before I get into the question, uh, first of all, you know, congratulations, Darren on Jesus in Athens. If you guys haven't checked that, vi- that movie out, it's streaming all over the place. It's, uh, it's groundbreaking. I don't know if it's won awards yet, but I'm going to give it an award. And, uh, the missions podcast documentary of the year award goes to Darren. And, uh, Thank so you. congratulations on that. And please check that out. But, uh, in 1974, the Luzon conference, uh, Ralph Winter and Donald McGavran introduced uh, these ideas that really have shaped missions since. Um, introducing these the idea of hidden peoples and highlighting the fact that there's probably in their mind at that time 16 to 17,000 uh, people groups that uh, did not have a sustained gospel witness in their language, which really rocked the missions world. I mean, we've been doing uh, missions uh, since the apostles and, and, uh, and yet this was a uh, a revelation and it it really led to uh, the development of the unreached people groups designation which is dominated missions conversations and as we're sitting around the room and I'm looking at your ministries um, whole mission agencies large mission agencies have changed their whole strategy of doing missions based on some of this work and then in September of 2019, Darren, you and Elliot Clark wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition challenging some of these unreached people group orthodoxies that are kind of considered orthodoxies, at least in the missions world. Why did you write it and what are some of your big concerns?
6: Yeah, I didn't write it to be a provocator. Um, I'll just uh, say a couple things and then I'll let everyone else uh, take their as they so desire. Um, I'll just say at the outset too that the view that "panta te ethne," which is the three words Ralph Winter took to mean every linguistic people group, it is the ruling majority view in missions. No question, but it is the holy grail of missions. You do not touch it, um, and to question it puts you in a small minority. But the majority view of missions is almost non-existent in the New Testament scholarship world. You know, I just, this morning, I picked up seven Matthew commentaries just to see if any of them picked up any discussion on, uh, Matthew 2014 and Pontotia ethne, and none of them did. So say a couple points of, uh, why I, I pushed back along with Elliot and, uh, that people can, uh, do what they want with it. Point one is that the exegesis is bad and not bad. It's just wrong. Um, we argue that the New Testament writers use ethne to describe Gentiles as distinct from Jews and Christians. That is, they're the Gentiles who are strangers to the promise. So that when you hear all nations and in the context of the gospel going out, it means there will be a full full inclusion of Gentiles back in. So the New Testament writers, they're not thinking about Ralph Winter's 20th century designation of people groups. They're more thinking in biblical. Term, specifically the Abraham covenant and people of nation that these nations become into them and join Abraham inheritance. So that's true in Matthew, but then as you get into Acts. Uh, you know, you see Acts 2, where it says that all nations under heaven were present in Jerusalem for Pentecost. You see Paul at the end of his ministry in 2 Timothy, telling Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, God worked through him so all nations might hear his message. So it seems that the term is uh, broad, not specific, and even broad in the sense of the first century. Like Matthew 24, 14, means the whole world as in the Roman world. That's how the term is used in the first century. So New Testament writers are thinking about Gentiles. Second thing is, is it finishable? You know, Paul seems to indicate in Romans 10 that he's finished it. The gospel has gone out to the inhabitants of the world, meaning Matthew 24. And there's a stream in evangelicalism that holds that the gospel has to reach every ethno-linguistic people group in order for Jesus to come back, you know, make, you know, it's like a, we have to do this and Jesus returns. And it's weird because it mostly comes out of dispensationalism who also believe in the imminent return of Christ. And you can't hold those two together. You can't believe there's that much work to be done and Jesus can come back and it's all that we also said is practically impossible Uh, We think the exegesis, uh, you know, it it usually also goes into Revelation 7 and the fourfold tongue, tribal language people uh, will be at the throne. And the way you people interpret that mission circles is each and every one. But if that way, then you have to, for the fact that languages don't exist, new languages have arisen, people groups have gone extinct, new people groups have uh, come into being and it's fluid. So... It can't be each and every single one because it's impossible for that to be true. And then the last one uh, that we make in the exegesis side is that the anthropology isn't settled. It's fluid. Um, You know, I was just on an email string with all the major researchers for a month of evangelism who does people groups. And the one thing I learned from that email string of a hundred emails is no one agrees on what a people group is. And it's just frustrating. So the exegesis is wrong, which leads to the talking points being wrong. We don't give enough, which I think is a bad use of statistics. Um, we are ignoring the central mission of Jesus, which I think is false. Uh, everything is urgent. And so speed is necessary. And so you have these talking points. And then for me, the methodolo- methodological fruit is bad. The homogenous unit principle. We best, and that's tied with unreached people groups. We reach people best. Uh, within our own groups and then in the name of urgency the disciple making movement and church planting that dominate missions so bottom line last thing and you guys can all attack as you so desire is that we need to be careful in our language when we talk about missions if biblically speaking pontita ethne doesn't mean each and every ethnolinguistic group then that be what drives our mission strategy. If the apostles themselves write that the gospel's gone out to the whole world is bearing fruit, it means that our idea of finishing the task has to be adjusted. P- mission agencies make decisions. If you're a missionary in a city and you are helping a people group, your mission agency, if you are dominated the unreached people group mantra, We'll tell you, no, you're done. Go to the unreached people group in the next city. What If the if the reach group is asking for help, you still go. If the unreached people group is hostile gospel, you still go. And so you do things like stop sending money to seminaries, which then push and push your money to evangelism. And the results have been bad. Uh, and this is not, these aren't theoretical things. These are real decisions. So Exegesis, and that's it. Yeah. So here's what I want to do. I'm
1: gonna I'm gonna pitch it over to to Brooks because this has kind of got the discussion (laughs) going. And then, um, and then I'm going to open it up to everyone else to respond. So that way, at least they're responding to both uh, ideas as kind of were presented in the article. So Brooks, in typical evangelical fashion, uh, in in model fashion, you and Chad Vargas wrote a response, and it was a good response, challenging the notion. And since we couldn't get John Piper here to actually respond to Darren uh, in person, um, you you respond that to the you respond to his notion that we've overemphasized unreached people groups and. My question for you is, is your response uh, mostly with Darren's exegesis, or is it more practical, or is it somewhere in between? Yeah, I think it's somewhere in between.
3: I think the exegetical side, I would have big questions about just from seeing... How people groups are played out in the Old Testament. Every instance that we have of nearly 100 recorded instances of people groups in the Old Testament do not refer to Gentile individuals. They refer to non Hebrew speaking nations. That's in the Old Testament. And then you move to the New Testament, pontata ethne, the phrase that we're talking about, occurs 18 times in the New Testament, and only one time is it clearly referring to individuals, not ethno-linguistic people groups. And so I think there's a real strong case to be made for Pontotai ethnic referring to ethno-linguistic people groups. And I think we see even the way that Jesus speaks about it in Luke 24 and Acts 1-8, continuing to move out to individuals. But I think the strongest case, and I'm just going to try and be brief here so that the other guys can weigh in. Um, <clears throat> we see Paul in Romans 15 stating that everything from Jerusalem to Illyricum, he has fully proclaimed the gospel. And yet church historians will tell us that less than 2% of the population was even exposed to the gospel, not that got saved, that he was even exposed to the gospel. And Paul says, my work is done there. So if the impetus is to get more individuals, he'd have been much more efficient to stay and keep working from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. But he says, no, I got to keep going to Spain. I got to go to the places where it still hasn't reached. I think Darren and I agree on a lot of things. I think the fruit of what has come out of missions recently with the DMM CPM stuff, all of that is bad fruit. But I think we disagree that the root of that is pontita ethne. I think pontita ethne actually drives us further. And then a complete reading of Matthew 28 to where teaching them to believe all that I have commanded you, that involves churches and churches take time. So the speed and pragmatism that we're seeing, that, that's not a reflection of pontita ethne. That's a reflection of bad theology that trickles down to bad missiology. So that that's where we kind of took a little bit of issue. Issue with the article that I don't think the outcomes come from what you're understanding in Pontotai Ethne, but I think the scriptures are pretty clear, and the, the apostles' model was always to keep moving, keep going to the places, not so that more people in one group could know, but other groups that have no disciples, no gospel, and most especially no church could have representatives among them. I think the scriptures press into that from the Old Testament all the way through to
1: the New Testament. Paul, did you want to respond to that?
5: Yeah. um, You know, the same passages that Paul talks about uh, being done with his work there, uh, he's headed back to Jerusalem uh, to do ministry in Jerusalem, where arguably the gospel uh, started, right? So I think there is a a, a both and uh, here. um, You know, we are talking about strategy and we are taking the Great Commission and we're working out. Uh, how to best to do that or how to, maybe best isn't the right word, but how to faithfully do that, right? And when we're using words like all anyway, um, uh, do we have to break down ethno-linguistic people groups or um, tribes and nations and kindred and peoples? And um, uh, so I think, while I think this is an important discussion, Uh, Because strategy is critical. Uh, How do we best use kingdom resources and how do we allocate those kingdom resources and how do we we prioritize uh, where we're going to go? Um, I think the exegesis, uh, if we do it carefully, we're going to find that we need to go to all the world and proclaim the gospel, um, whether they're reached or unreached. The discussion, I think, gets important where we begin to prioritize.
0: The question of priority, then let me cut in and direct a question to Zane. So Zane, speaking from your perspective at the IMB, um, IMB probably would represent one of those organizations that has shifted focus more towards evangelizing unreached people groups and maybe away from some other things. Um, Is that accurate? And, And if so, what's driving that? Is that mostly practical or is that mostly exegetical? And how are you approaching that?
2: Well, we we have certainly evolved in our our approach to things really over the last 40 years. Um, At the beginning of the 80s, we were a very traditional mission agency with a a focus on countries, and that's what we were doing. I think Ralph Winter's word in 1974 was a wake-up call for us to recognize in his language that there were hidden peoples, that even in the countries where we were working, there were peoples that we were completely ignoring, people that we were not taking the gospel to, because we were focusing on a majority language and a majority people in a given country. And then also that there were a lot of people in places where you could not go as a traditional missionary who also had no access to the gospel. I would say pendulums swing and ours swung. And so we went from having almost entirely a traditional missions focus to an obsessive unreached people's focus um, and really redirecting our uh, our energies there, and I would say some of the concerns that Darren has expressed certainly characterize some of our work. I, in the, over the course of the 90s, we pretty much abandoned traditional theological education. I'm, I might add, as someone who was uh, a grunt in the field at the time, not all of us agreed with that. In fact, some of us protested rather loudly, and others of us just quietly went about in good missionary, passive-aggressive fashion and kept doing it anyway. But uh we saw that sort of transformation. And I think in recent years, the pendulum has swung for us sort of back in the middle in a couple of ways. One is that a few years back, we introduced the language of unreached peoples and places with a recognition that as you read through the book of Acts, what you see is is a geographic expanse that's laid out for us as the agenda in Acts 1-8 and then happens throughout the book. Um, We recognize that it's not all particularly um, just people group based, but then also we, we have pretty much given up on the anthropological discussions of the definition of people group, recognizing that those are a modern imposition on the biblical text. Um, and the goal of this is inclusivity, basically that no one should be left out. That we want to make sure that we are not bypassing anyone in terms of access to the gospel in our in our pursuit of of, of doing effective ministry. And then and then the third thing is that rather than simply say we got to have a convert from each people group, uh, we're thinking now in terms of a comprehensive missionary task that we're, that we're defining as going from entry through evangelism, disciple making healthy church planting into leadership training, and then reaching a point where we can exit to a partnering relationship. And so what we're saying now is not that we've got to touch each people group with the gospel, but that we've got to complete or at least give solid footing to the entire missionary task in a given place or among a given people. And one of the consequences of that is that we have reengaged some things that we walked away from, I think wrongly walked away from in, in years past, so that uh, one of those areas would be theological education. We have massively reengaged it in recent years because of the recognition that really was missionary malpractice to touch and go, as it were, to do hit and run uh, mission work. I would say, in terms of is this practical or theological? What what I would would sort of remind everyone is that words have ranges of meaning, and that's the same thing with the word ethne. Um, that yes, there are points in which ethne and words like goyim and amim in the in the Old Testament have purely a non-Jewish sense. They're just the Gentiles. But then you also have things like the table of nations, which names specific nations right before the promise is given to Abraham um, in Genesis. And you have the addition of words like tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations that indicate a bit more of specificity. So the way we have come down on that is to say we're going to define a people group as the largest group of people within whom the gospel can flow unhindered without encountering a barrier that must be crossed or stepped over. And operating from that, then, like I said, I think our pendulum has swung back a bit. And we are attempting to make sure that we are actually doing responsible mission work everywhere we go, while still wanting to make sure we get the gospel to those who don't yet have any access to it.
1: So I want to get um, I I want to get um, John and Matt's thoughts on this, especially as two guys who are professors. And then I want to circle back to Darren and let Darren kind of respond, because I'm sure he's got some responses to what you're hearing. And then we'll kind of go on to some of our other questions. So, John, uh, what do you want to would you like to add something to this discussion?
7: Well, no, I I, I want to say I, I really enjoyed Darren's article. I think it was really helpful. And then the response was helpful as well. Um, but I think that what happened at, at Luzon was was super helpful to us missionally as we thought about strategy, because, for example, when, when we first entered the field, we entered into Spain and in Spain there were multiple languages, multiple peoples. But the focus was just on what was Spain. Same thing in North Africa. Um, The people that that we worked with in North Africa, whenever they would finish speaking Arabic, they would spit to get the Arabic out of their mouth. Um, So just learning Arabic wasn't enough, right? So we had to focus on specific people groups in order to properly reach them with the gospel and in, in order to see churches planted. So I think that emphasis on moving towards people groups was super helpful. Um, the, the danger was then that that we only focused on our people group and and we didn't allow, um, for a while there, there, I I remember being told, no, this is your people group. That's the only people you're allowed to to work with. And that was super problematic for me. And uh, perhaps as Zane said, I was, um, we just kept doing what we were doing. Um, and, uh, there wasn't much, much place to argue about it. Um, and we just kept doing what we were doing anyway. But, but I, I think that, what Ralph Winter did for us is really, really unblinded our eyes, opened our eyes to say, hey, there are all of these people that we are not doing a good job of reaching. Um, and, and we needed to refocus there. So um, I think it was helpful at the time.
4: Matt. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, just like a lot of things, um, Ralph Winter did help to address some of the things that were pertinent in his day, but the people who took Ralph Winter and turned his thoughts into strategies subsequently and have maybe Uh, altered the actual fundamental missionary task in light of taking some of these uh, identifiable people groups and putting them on a list and saying, once we get the last one done, we can bring Jesus back. Um, I think that's where things started to go a bit awry. And so my my biggest issue is what are we defining the missionary task as? and what is our key passage to go to. Darren mentioned Matthew 24, 14, and that's a passage that many um, unreached people group advocates go to to say, this is the irreducible missionary task to see the gospel proclaimed. And I think it's, it's really important. And one of the things I hammer with my students is Matthew 24, 14 is a beautiful promise from Jesus, but it's a promise, it's not a command. And what we see is that he is the one who's going to bring about the fulfillment of that promise when we follow the commands that are given to us in Matthew 28 to make disciples, to teach total obedience to Jesus and to baptize in the triune name of God, making, uh, making churches that will then carry on that task. And so my, my primary uh, discussion with my students is, well, what are we defining this task is, as? And then is that one that we can complete? Or is that one that we just simply need to be diligently working back, uh, working at, until the Lord returns? Um, And so I'm I'm more focused on making disciples rather than um, uh, identifying which peoples have heard the gospel.
1: So I'm going to throw out a provocative quote here. So now we've used this word three, at least three times. Um, Darren said, if the short-term missions is the golden calf of American missions, unreached people groups is the holy grail. You're not allowed to touch it. So well, what do we think about that? Um, before I give it back to Darren,
6: uh, do you... Why did you do that, <laughs> <laughs> you told me I could. <laughs> I just want to let everyone know listening that that was a testage that I sent to Scott Dunford and now he's taking private text messages and, po- and putting them in public forums. I've been watching so these forums apart.
1: and this is what they do. So uh, okay. I've, I've been learning this and actually I, I, I didn't I put asked it on them, Twitter. Uh, I do not recall. <laughs> <laughs> so, so is, is this a kind of thing where when we pursue unreached people groups, it is a distraction or is it a helpful, uh, I'm hearing kind of a say a little bit of both, but, If you were starting a mission agency from scratch, would you make unreached people groups your target? Can everyone just give me a quick answer on that?
2: Can I just jump in here? An important principle is that abuse does not take away use. And the fact that an approach to unreached people groups can be misused doesn't mean that it's, it's invalid. I would also add that the fact that a sense of eschatological urgency can be abused but there's unquestionably an eschatological dimension to the mission that God has, has left with his people. And, um, and so properly nuanced, I don't see how we can escape a people group focus for our mission work. With the understanding, I, I completely agree with Matt, that the task is not defined by that. The task is defined as making disciples, which then also brings in evangelism and church planting and leadership development and all of those things uh, so that we look to the whole of Scripture, the whole counsel of God, to define the task for us. But this is one element of it, and it's an element that helps shape our strategies.
4: Um, we are going to get a recording of this where you you heard Zane say that he completely agreed with me. That's like a, <laughs> yes, you can, that's a page that on, on your uh, website.
1: Okay. Right. You put that on your next book cover. Oh, it's <laughs> it's all over it. <laughs> Anyone else want to chime in on that? Yeah, I'd
3: say uh, I agree with Zane. I mean, the abuse of it doesn't mean we throw out the baby with the bathwater. We've found at Radius it's much more helpful to define unreached language groups rather than unreached people groups. Unreached people groups, you get into this quagmire where you've got Joshua project defining North American hockey players and the unreached LGBTQ community of South Carolina as an unreached people group. Like anything becomes an unreached people group as long as there's a mass of people that somehow coagulates around one certain thing. And so it's very unhelpful just because everybody and everything has become an unreached people group in our day and age. That's why you've got guys like Spitters and Ellison writing books about when everything is missions. When everything becomes the Great Commission, and everything is a people group and everything's missions. As long as you're doing something with a non family member outside of your house, it counts as missions. And that's just that you've got to have a tighter focus. And I think that tighter focus comes in language. Language is this thing that we see as this theme all the way through the Old Testament, ending up in Revelation. I think it's the easiest, most objective. We found it's the most objective measuring tool. There's about 3,100 languages left with no gospel, no disciples, no church. Let's go after those. And this isn't, there's not supposed to be a ticking time clock on this. Once we get there and get those last guys, I don't think that's the emphasis, but like what Zane said, there is this pressure that somehow there is an eschatological element to this. So we've just found that language groups is much easier rather than people groups because everything is a people group these days.
1: Paul or John?
2: Yeah, I think
7: I think another thing that that was really helpful out of that Luzon conference was the the themes that emerged of of whole church, whole gospel, and whole world and I think that one of the things that that we need to keep in mind is that this the task isn't just dependent upon the the Western Church either um, it really is the whole church uh, across the board from from Latin America to Africa to Asia. Uh, to to Central Asia, um, Europe, we we all need to be about the task, and so yeah, as we think about that ecological dimension of of a passion for seeing the nations um, be glad as they rejoice and 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 worship the Father, it is something that we do as the church as a whole. So, the whole concept of of discipleship, deep discipleship, the whole concept of deep teaching in uh, in Latin America or Africa or Asia. Is so vital as churches are developed and then those churches as they grow they go to the nations as well so i i just want to remind us that, that it's not just the west right it's not just our agencies that need to be reaching into the whole world but it is the whole world the whole church that that goes to the whole world and and that's an exciting aspect i think of missions today uh, as as we come alongside missionaries that that come from all over the world, and and we work in these intercultural teams to to reach the nations uh, with the gospel, is a tremendous opportunity.
5: Mm. Paul, yes, Scott and uh, uh, Alex, I really like the way this conversation is going. There were two things that were said that uh, just really resonated with me. One, Matt's emphasis on on discipleship, because I think discipleship, the, the whole spectrum of discipleship is critical as we talk about this. The other thing was something that Brooks said when he said, keep moving. We need to keep moving. And uh, you know the first participle in the Great Commission is to go. And this idea of going into all the world or going to all nations, all uh, I, I think there's this there's this this motion um, uh, loving uh, peace to the gospel, that the gospel likes to go, the gospel wants to be taken to new places and to new regions. And so this is a, this is a great and healthy discussion because we have to do both, right? We, we have to disciple fully. And so we need seminaries and we need, um, we need training centers and we need good theological education all around the globe. Uh, but we also need to be going. We can't just stay there and, and camp where those theological training places are. Um, we have to be constantly going and reaching. And so uh, I love those, just those two comments. I was just sitting here listening and resonating with the, the, the constantly making disciples the whole spectrum and the, and the keep moving uh, idea.
0: Well, we want to dive more into that, but we're going to begin uh, that, and we want to hear Darren Carlson's rebuttal and clarify some thoughts, but we're going to do that after we hear from some of our sponsors.
6: We are living in an age of migration never before have so many people been on the move. In 2015, 1,5504 migrants entered Europe. The access point for most is through Greece, with its 16,000 kilometers of coastline. Its proximity to Turkey, which is just kilometers from multiple Greek islands, make it a popular route of travel. <laughs> But on their journey, something quite unexpected has occurred. Religious conversions and revival have broken out, especially amongst Muslims fleeing their war-torn countries. So join us as we meet the people who feed and clothe some of the most marginalized people in the world. Gather with the chosen outcasts as they come out of darkness and into light. Witness the miraculous See the love of Christians toward people who were told Christians would hate them. Watch churches spring into action, entertaining strangers, showing hospitality, learning to reject hatred and fear. This is the story of God, gathering people and nations to himself in a crisis. At Cedarville University apart at Cedarville we affirm a literal six-day creation in every course and in every program our students gather daily for chapel with dynamic worship and powerful teaching every student completes a Bible minor as part of their academic program we offer more than 150 in-demand academic programs including professional and health sciences programs we have a vibrant intentionally christian community with 4193 undergraduate graduate and online students we're honored to be listed among answers in genesis select list of creation colleges in every course in every program, we boldly acknowledge the Bible as the ultimate framework for work and study. Explore our top-ranked undergraduate, graduate, and online programs for yourself.
8: The church is built for action, to spread the gospel, to help the poor, heal the sick, to free the oppressed and rebuild what's broken. We're made and called to go out into the world and work. But real action requires resources, skills and manpower, which we don't always have in our own churches, but we do in the church because the church is one body and it's unstoppable when it works together, when it's connected. That's why Live Global exists, to connect churches and believers in the U.S. with other churches and believers abroad to do the work they are called to do. Kingdom Networkers, we build deep relationships with churches, nonprofits, and individuals across the world to facilitate partnerships that enable all churches and the church to work better together. Go to liveglobal.org to find a partner and get to work.
0: And welcome to this special episode of the missions podcast and our live T4G 20 webcast. And we're excited that you're joining us and we're talking about who the nations are. What does Jesus mean when he says, Pantata ethne, go to every nation in the great commission. interestingly, The North America branch of ABWE International, one of our important sponsors, is called Every Ethne. And one of the things about Every Ethne is their focus is on not just going, but also doing cross-cultural ministry here in our own backyard. Before the church was born, Jesus told his disciples to watch and pray. He didn't give them a marketing plan. He didn't give them the perfect strategy, some of the things that we're debating here, but he told them to wait and pray And he would sustain them with his promise, which is that I would build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, that's what every ethne wants to do this year. And so ABWE's North America ministry, every ethne is inviting everybody listening to this and watching this video to join them for their day of prayer uh, for North America church planting. It's going to be happening on Sunday, May 31st, which is also Pentecost. For those of you that are paying attention to the calendar, they are going to provide everybody with daily prayer prompts for Thanksgiving, confession, petitions, as we depend on Jesus to build his church throughout North America. Parts of the world that sometimes we consider reached, but we all know just looking out on our own neighborhoods, how desperately North America needs the gospel. So for more information on that, go to prayer. That's everyethne.church church slash week of prayer and join us starting on that day in praying for the nations in North America. But Scott, I want to
1: get back to Darren and hear his rebuttal to some of these things, don't you? Yeah. So Darren, thank you so much. As you can tell just from responses, I think that what you've said has sparked a lot of good conversation and thought. We really have more agreement than disagreement, but I want to circle back to you since you've been waiting patiently and everyone's had their chance to either pick a hole or agree with you. What are your thoughts?
6: I appreciate everyone who agreed with me and, um, I, I'll just, and, and the back as well. I'll, I'll say, um, you know, one of the issues in this discussion is that the gap of the methodology of the people on this is very small. Uh, you know, it, it, like when a church debates the Trinity, not many people rise up, but when you debate like, uh, I don't know, and egalitarian issues because you can see the issue Uh, it gets a little more intense and that's what happens in the methodological debates of rapid planting and um, other issues. And so, you know, some of the people who've come out of uh, uh, the McGavern winter kind of group, if they were sitting here, they would be trying to crush me, you know, because uh, I'm saying that their method is wrong and it's not helpful. And, uh, it's biblical and, uh, that's something Brooks and I I think would agree with. And Zane would probably uh, be qualified in his agreement with, and, uh, and you other guys would be in agreement with. So, uh, but now we get down to the brass tax of the exegesis and that's not as fun, uh, to go back and forth on. I'll just say that, um, Obviously, I don't agree with Brooks and his uh, understanding of ethne and the New Testament, how that gets played out in the Old Testament. Um, But we'll say that at the core of what we do, we always want to have our, I'm not accusing Brooks of this, I'm accusing me of this, uh, our mission to be like what is central to Jesus' heart. And so we tend to build an exegesis to uh, motivate our own mission. And you can see that in theological education, like, didn't, aren't you paying attention to the great commission to teach them to obey all Christ commanded you, we need to be doing theological education. And then other people will say, no, you have to do evangelism. Don't you see the great You go to all the nations and instead of this, what's, and I'm closer to Zane on this is full orbed disciple making. I don't want to say movement, but disciple making process of you know, making disciples, building up the church, planting the church, having churches plant churches, partnering with churches. And that these can all happen simultaneously instead of saying unreached, 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 which comes out of, in my mind, uh, a definition of Pantata Ethne that's not in scripture. That comes uh, from anthropology, which is a helpful tool. For reaching the nations, uh, but even as Brooke's saying, you know, like people, what it, people can't even define what a people group is, and so some organizations abandoned it and just say, "Well, unreached language," and there's even issues with that. So, I think it's just we can agree on a lot. The issues are methodological, outside of this discussion. That really is when you get down to the rubber hits the road and decisions are made, and discipleship is happening in real real time. Darren, let me cut in and just ask a clarifying question, too.
0: You made the statement that Brooks' definition of pantheta ethne isn't in the New Testament, okay, and you want to throw that out there. And, and I want to let you respond briefly and then let the other guys hop in, and Scott has more questions for us to dig through. But just to clarify real quick, we're debating the definition of ethne, plural, right? So, how would Darren Carlson define ethnos, singular? So, if we have this idea of the nations, who are the nations? Well, what is a nation?
6: Uh, I would define it as the non-believing Gentiles, and that the point uh, is the inclusion of um, the the inclusion of people who are outside of the promise, and that in Acts two, those nations representative are now hearing the gospel preached and that it is not. And that ethnic is not a specific ethno linguistic peoples, but instead broadly the people who are outside of the promise. Now, you run that down a few levels. What does that mean practically? And you know, that's where method, method, methodology comes into play. And that's where we all agree. Like, even if we disagree on 50,000 feet, we all agree on, we still go, we're still inclusive, uh, of all peoples to come, uh, of all, yeah, all peoples who are outside of the promise to hear the gospel. So so here's what I want to do. And, uh, can I just add one last thing? I'll just add one last thing. Sure. It should be telling to us. It's either that new Testament scholars don't care about missions, which honestly I asked a, a prominent New Testament scholar, if he knew the ponta ethne argument and he said, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he's a prominent new Testament writer in the, in North America. So there is a disconnect, but it should tell us something that no major new Testament writer of commentaries I have Talk about this issue at all, Carson, Schnabel, Osborne, blomberg I could just Keener. All these people don't take it as ethno linguistic people groups, and so that should cause the missions people who, not are driven practically, are driven by practical issues, but by the issues that are in front of them, should at least cause them to pause and go, "Huh? Why don't any of our evangelical, even in our reformed circles that we're in?" Take that stance. Oh, there's so much I want to say,
1: but yeah. John John Piper would disagree with you, and he's a pretty big New Testament scholar. Uh, <laughs> let's let's. I'm gonna, here's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Uh, I'm gonna yeah. move it on. and uh, but within these other questions, I think there's opportunities for each of you as I'm going to target some different questions to different people for you to kind of share some of your thoughts on that. And Darren, if you want to come back to that later in yours or Brooks or whoever, uh, feel free to to add more discussion to that as I ask these other questions. That makes sense. so i'm I'm gonna kind of shift it a little bit because uh, if I'm being honest when I listen to everyone talk, I know in the back of my mind, there's this tension, right? There's this tension between I can, I've got a ministry to do and I'm invested in the ministry that we're doing. And, uh, but I also want to be faithful to this broader command that Christ has given us and that, that tension. So Paul, you know, you're, you're the president of ABWE ABWE is 94 years old. They've been doing ministry around the world. Uh, and, and certainly over time, those things, that, that's changed. When we were in the Philippines 94 years ago, uh, the Philippines was largely fitting in that category of unreached peoples, and yet now here we are with thriving churches. So how does a mission agency with length and history and legacy address the needs of the unreached while maintaining the commitments it's already made in places where the gospel has been for some time?
5: Yeah, That's a great question, and and it's one of the reasons why I tend to focus on the word all or every, every instead of ethnic, because uh, um, I do think there's an uh, a ministry aspect of of all and going everywhere. Um, After being an agency for ninety four years, there are fields that have grown up and have matured, and uh, missionaries have come and then they've gone. And then we have fields where missionaries have come and they've gone and they've come back. Um, and, uh, you know, even as Zane was sharing uh, with strategies of theological education, you know, there, uh, you know missionaries came and, and started things and built, had disciples, made disciples, um, made disciples that could make disciples, but uh, um, started theological education, missionaries pulled out and now, Again, missionaries are coming back again. And um, so I think that there's this, uh, there's this pervasive all that needs to take place. And again, getting back to the priority conversation, this is where I think it's important. And, and this is where I would wholeheartedly agree with Brooks. Um, when we say all, there are places that are desperately difficult to go. There's a reason why they haven't been reached yet. And it's, it's harder to get there. There are cultural problems. There are linguistic problems. There are uh, visa problems. There are border problems in order to get to these people. And um, these conversations are, are critical because we have to go to these places even though they're not easy. And we need organizations to, to not be satisfied with where they're at but we also, I don't want to leave people behind. I don't want to leave groups that are fledgling, um, behind, uh, believers that are, are maybe in a cultural pocket or in an ethno linguistic pocket, um, that needs support. And so I think as a, as mission agencies, we need to do the former, but not leave out the latter. I mean, we need to do, uh, we need to do both. And, um, and balancing the priorities, I think, is is the the, the difficult conversation. Um, and where do we send new missionaries? And as we train new missionaries, uh, we need to train theological educators for for places that, uh, again, these ethno linguistic pockets that don't have a rich theological heritage like Western um, culture has. Um, but we also need to train out these pioneer missionaries that will go to these very, very difficult things. And so, uh, going back to what we said before, I think we have to keep moving. Um, we have to support those that are already in place. And so they don't get, uh, uh, so that, so they don't weary on, you know, on the vine, so to speak. Um, but they continue to grow and flourish because I know for us and for what I'm wanting for ABWE is I want us to bear fruit that remains. And so as we reach a a people group, we want to reach them in such a way that their fruit will remain long
2: term.
1: Uh, That that's helpful. And you know, we're gonna Darren will have a chance to mention even in his, but I I know there's places that 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 some of the reaching and teaching and training leaders international are going to train leaders that have had missionaries for a long time and then have pulled out, and yet the need still remains and so I think that's a very helpful point um, so John, I want to bring it to you for a second. Um, we've talked a lot around this idea of the ex- eschatological implications of missions, um, and certainly. You know Revelation seven, Revelation five. They're in the Bible. You know uh, there is a unique reason that that John is highlighting that uh, that scene around the throne with every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. You, we do have Matthew twenty four fourteen in the Bible. Um, you know as you're thinking about this idea of finishing the task, is there any element of finish the task mentality that's biblical and legitimate? And and how should some of those eschatological passages drive us as we think about this and because in my mind i mean i've preached missions messages and part of the reason why i do think we can go to the unreached and be successful is because revelation 7 is in the bible uh so what what would you say to that i think somebody said
7: earlier um that, that really that's the result so even you take matthew 24 14 the result of, of everything that's come before is that the gospel be proclaimed among all the nations, right? And that people will hear the gospel. But prior to that, you know, you, you can't just pull 2414 out. Um, it's in the middle of this incredible um text talking about the the signs of the end of the age, right? And and Jesus in in that in that that talk in, in his sermon there, he's, he's, he's telling the church, he's telling the disciples, he's t- telling us, first of all, don't be led astray. Well, that means we've got to teach well, right? We've got to train well. We've got to disciple well. So he says, don't be led astray. Don't be alarmed. I, I love that um, when you know he's talking about all these terrible things that are happening, he says, don't be alarmed. Um, we can have such confidence in the Lord, no matter where we are, no matter what it is that we're doing. Um, we don't have to be alarmed. We don't have to be afraid. I think of Joshua as God speaks to Joshua and is telling him to go into the land and numerous times he says, don't be afraid. Um, so he says, don't be alarmed. And and then he says, says you'll face severe tribulation. And and to me, when, when, when Jesus is saying, Hey, tribulation is coming, difficulties are coming. That means that we need to prepare the church for those things that are, are, are coming. Um, and, and then he says to endure. Well, all of that, what, what Jesus is saying there is, hey, the, the end result is that the gospel is preached among the nations. And as we're taking the gospel to the nations, we need to make sure that we are going deep in discipleship. So then we go to Matthew 28 and, and we think about going deep in discipleship. We think about baptizing, so that means that that we 're helping people come to faith, helping them know who Jesus is, so that that god can can gloriously save them and and as a result of that we we think about church planting and and I love G- j d greer and and gaining um, gain by losing. He says church planting is really about developing leaders who make disciples a good um, good leaders plant healthy churches and so you know this this deep discipleship this this baptizing and then this this teaching right so 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 he says to to teach um so deep biblical training with tangible results what does that then look like so we don't even want to think about at reach and teaching we want to just think about hey how many people did we teach but what are the results of that teaching what what is happening and i think this is what what we've missed for for so long in in missions is that that we, we have had seminaries for, for years in, in different places. And, and Zane's right, at the IMB, we pulled out a number of years ago, but now going back in. But, but what is gonna be the, the tangible results of that? So even when I teach here, Um, or teach overseas, I want to say, well, what's going to result? What's going to be the result? What does a healthy church look like? And how are healthy churches planting healthy churches? What's taking place as a result of deep discipleship, as a result of baptism and evangelism, and as a result of teaching? And, And how is that going to then reach out to the the ethnolinguistic groups that are, are around the world. And I, I love I love Brooke's definition of of unreached as ethnolinguistic groups because that's that's what we saw so much of, right? All of these these pockets of of language groups who weren't hearing the gospel in in a way that they could deeply understand. And then how do we go deep with them to to train them up to to truly be a church that that uh, that worships and, and knows God fully.
1: So, what's the point of like Revelation seven and revelation five? what What do they add to the missionary uh, motivation, or do they add anything to that?
7: And this is what I look forward to, right? And so so, as we stand before the Father, we'll stand before the Father with with all these ethnolinguistic groups around us, and and we'll be worshiping together in and i I feel like we'll be worshiping in our languages. Um, and, and it'll be a glorious moment that of, of what I look forward to, this is what God is going to do, right? Um, this is how God is going to work. And that's what, what I long for and and dedicate myself to is, uh, seeing, um, seeing that moment in heaven. And, and, uh, I, I just, man, I think about what a glorious time that will be when, when we're together, it's, it's kind of like zoom right now. It's, it's, I feel so separate from everyone. Um, and I look forward to when we can be together and and it's the same thing with heaven. I look forward to when we're with all these brothers and sisters from around the world, um, worshiping the father.
1: You want to add to that?
7: Yeah, I think,
4: uh, I, I share that vision. And I think when I look at revelation or Matthew 24, I do count this a great promise that God has secured in his sovereignty that he's going to accomplish this. And I think, uh, like one of the things that's pertinent to this discussion is uh, kind of unpacking what do we mean about discipleship and what are we doing when we disciple somebody what do we expect them to do is the same gospel that compelled us to go to places where it hasn't been preached going to do the same with that next layer of people and I think when we start thinking about uh, like Paul you've been saying uh, moving on and keeping on to take the gospel to that next place where it hasn't been proclaimed I think there's certainly a sense in which we have that task but we're also handing that task off to those people in the field that are receiving it. And so I do take a lot of hope that we are going to stand around the throne one day with a uh, countless tribe uh, of people from every tongue and language and people. And I, I think that that's something we can have confidence in, in God's sovereignty. But I think it's as we make disciples who take that gospel indiscriminately to the next layer of people. So with Darren, I I do see the ambiguity of uh, the language that has become the foundation for some of our strategies, but also with Zane, I see the importance of us coming alongside of some of these mission field locations with the, uh, socio-anthropological data to say, look, here's a barrier to where the gospel is not naturally crossing. I can take it there, but you can too. And be being able to cast that missional vision for people in the places where they find themselves, because that's part of the discipleship and disciple making process that we've been given and that we've been sent to do. And so I think uh, I tend to talk less about identifying those specific people and rather talk more about discipling to the horizons. So that the people who are receiving the gospel are also being caught up in the vision that one day God is going to is going to receive the worship from the languages and and tongues of people from all over.
2: I would like to add something there that the whole Bible is eschatologically oriented. It's not like eschatology is sort of thrown at the end at the end. I mean, there there is a fundamental teleological nature to history in the Bible. It's going somewhere, and one of the reasons I believe pastorally that the eschatological sections are included in the Bible is that they constitute encouragement for those who are in difficult places. In fact, I think es- eschatology is routinely misused uh, as source of speculation. And typically, whenever the end is mentioned, it's either to encourage the afflicted or to challenge the complacent, one of those two. Mm-hmm. And there, there are several of us here who have worked extensively in extremely difficult fields in, in areas particularly in the Muslim world, where not only is uh, sort of culture and community stacked against you, but then also um, I, I, I've seen a picture of a brother of mine whose, whose head was cut off with a knife because he converted to faith in Jesus. And what we, what we need to hold on to with this whole eschatological dimension is this keeps us going this encourages us. This says, you know, that our labor is not in vain in the Lord, that uh, I may be laboring here and it's hard and, and I weep sometimes, but that weeping is going to end and these people are going to stand with me before the throne. And so I think keeping the proper use of eschatology in view can be really helpful as we think about this. It's not designed to turn us into some sort of, of a frenzy of activity. It's it's designed to keep us going, even in something that's really hard.
3: Yeah, I would I would second that. What Zane is saying, in that eschatology gives us a description of what final things are. I think primarily what he mentioned there is for encouragement's sake. But it's not our marching orders. Our marching orders come at the end of the gospels. That's the marching orders to the church, not to individuals. To church, and I think. When we start losing that emphasis of the ultimate goal isn't to make disciples, it's to gather those disciples into churches. And as churches are planted, that's the finish line. That's the actual finish line of what we're doing. Disciples are a great first step. They're a necessary step. But then as we gather those disciples into these churches, that we'll actually see the light spread across. That's why Paul had confidence to head to Spain, is because there were these little outposts of light in Galatia. Corinth, Ephesus, Antioch, he could keep moving because the beacon was there. And I think as we press on to that, it's astounding to me how many good Christian organizations take the Great Commission and it gets moved and molded into something that fits different purposes. Acts 1-8 in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria somehow that becomes San Diego California, North America and then it goes out to the rest Like this was never meant to be allegorical this was supposed to be a direct command. No one hearing that would have thought oh this is my Jerusalem and then that's Judea. They would have all thought of specific geographic Locations and we keep moving. We keep going to those last people groups that still have nothing. And so I, I think that's where some of our frustration at Radius is the church really likes to talk a lot about the great commission and a ton about missions, but they're very haphazard in the way they apply those final commands of Jesus. And they pull from different ways. And it just, it starts to become this mushy pot that you can do anything with. So anyways, i am got on a little bit of a tangent there, but I, I would second what Zane said that these are descriptive passages they're not the ethos they're not the push behind why the church does what it does today
6: i uh yes amen <laughs> and amen and that's why the fireworks would happen more on the methodology side and why i uh would happily support Brooks' ministry and love with what Radius is doing. To send people to the Radius. I think technology, I mean, this is part of the exorcist for me. You know, the promise is that he'll be with us. And that encouragement, um, you know, is the promise that this people that I'm trying to reach will be with me. I don't know because that, that would take the revelation seven, nine as specific and personalizing it to the specific group I'm working with. You know, and I just, I think of, you know, there's some cultures and some of you guys have served in these cultures and, uh, you know, you deserve double honor where, you know, generationally, you just, there can't, there's no, there's no fruit. And then you see Iran and you're like, what is happening here? Like you just share the gospel with 10 Iranians and eight come to Christ in 30 minutes. But then you go to the Middle Eastern countries around Iran and you're like, why won't anyone convert? after three generations of work. And uh you know, so I I am careful to say what well what's the eschatological promise that uh that each and every group, including the one I'm working with, Jesus will conquer and reign and they will sing it at the throne. Uh maybe I hope so. Uh but I also take comfort in he will be with us uh as as we go out. And the details of the specific group whatever that even means, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Cause I'm not, I'm not sure that verse is specific.
1: So Matt, I want to switch over to ask you a question. So a lot of you are working with students. Um, but Matt, you're in the classroom and you're, you're, you've been on the field. You've been in one of those hard places. Um, how do you address this tension with students who are not yet engaged in missions, but are seeking to go, do you encourage them to go to the unreached or do you just kind of leave that that open? How, how do you address that tension with the students that you work with? And I know John, you're, you're working in with undergrads as well. Um, I'm just curious how you guys handle that.
4: Yeah, uh, kind of like I mentioned before, I think one of, my, one of my big keys in training students to catch a vision for going to the nations is less about uh, how we specifically define them or kind of recognizing some of the ambiguity that Darren's picking up on in that, in that particular language, but trying to say, how do we disciple them uh, to take their own task of disciple making and make it something that hands off that same burden for the nations, for the next layer of people who haven't heard to cross that next barrier of uh, gospel transmission. And so uh, particularly since I'm working with a lot of people who are going to graduate as 22, 23 year olds who are going to go overseas for the first time, the vast majority of them for their first term are going to land in a place that may not be this isolated, unreached place. They're going to have to learn language. They're going to have to be in contact with um, uh, with groups that probably have some sort of a Christian presence already. So I'm less concerned with giving them that uh, identify a person on or a people group on Joshua Project and go get them and more inclined to say, understand the task that you're going to do. And then as you're learning language, find those people who are already doing that task in the community and see what it takes to work alongside of them, to learn from them, and maybe even cast some vision <laughs> for them to go farther and to take the gospel to the places uh, that it it isn't going in that community. And then from that point, um, you know, follow the, follow the trail of where the Lord leads you. Maybe you're the one to go to that next layer of lostness, or maybe the people that you're discipling in that place uh, during your first term are the people who are going to catch a vision for that group. It's a little easier for me too in uh, in the classroom because I'm always trying to defer back to the churches that these students are coming from to say, look, your first port of call in determining where you should be sent should be in concert with the church that you're a member at. Um, you should be hearing what is what are your elders seeing in terms of the vision for the church that you belong to, and how can you come alongside of that? So to some degree, I get to deflect some of those first steps, but always I'm trying to dri- drive in to them. How can you both have a vision for the places that the gospel is not naturally overcoming sociological barriers? And then how can you impact that? And then how can you put that in that sort of DNA in the disciples that you're making in that
1: place? I I don't want to put words into into Brooks's mouth, but I'm going to try. I can imagine having been to Radius and seeing the training that they're doing. going, well, if, if you have two students or one student and he takes a trip to a beautiful, lush country with really wonderful food and really warm culture and uh, you know there's a nice community to become a part of and then you also take him over to like, Tajikistan you know and let him try that out a little bit and and kind of go where do you see yourself ministering it's gonna be pretty easy to make that decision right like yeah who doesn't want to go to Brazil like I would I mean Brazilians are wonderful uh and they're nice and easy to get along with how do we push students to think beyond when you know Darren's mentioned, you know, the small group the the, the short term missions problem, right? Like there's places where it's easy to go to short term. We're not going to take a short term team to Kazakhstan, like that doesn't happen, you know? Uh we don't take them to the hardest places. We take them to places that we have access and we can give them a good experience and there's there's good ways to do that and bad ways to do that. How do we keep pushing students uh, to some of the hard places if if we don 't have this emphasis, uh, John or Brooks, or any of you guys want to answer that
3: yeah, let me just say real quick i i 'll try and be real quick. Um, we find at radius i mean radius is training students they the the classes are capped there 's We have more applicants than we have spaces typically right now. 2021 still has spaces, but these students are coming to us. Maybe the opposite of what I'm hearing Matthew describe. We're getting students from the University of Alabama, Texas A&M, some from Liberty, some from Taylor, some from Cal Baptist, but a lot of them from secular universities that are just getting saved there. And their desire is to go to these places that have no gospel witness. And like, I forget who it was on the panel that said the last 3,100 language groups that are left on the face of the earth with none of those things are not random. It's not by accident that they're the last 3,100. There's a reason why those ones are the ones that are left. They're hard to get to. They have difficult languages. And we find that our best marketing strategy, to be honest, is to paint the picture as dark as possible. This is going to be very difficult. This is going to be very hard. This is going to take 15 to 30 years of your life. But the king is worth it. And the King is given a command and you find that the right people step up for that type of a task and the right people will find Brazil and the right people will find other locations. And they're, they're the church needs to be encouraged and it needs to be grown. I love what I hear coming out of TMAI, the Masters Institute International and different organizations that are supporting the national church. But to, to, let's be really clear about this the gospel is there the church is strong in mandarin it's strong in arabic there is a church in bahasa there is a strong church in hindi but it's beyond those language groups those gateway languages to the minority language groups that's where nothing exists and you get the right type of person when you say this will cost you a ton it may cost your wife it may cost your children But it's worth it. And then the right people step up for that. So there's a great disparity in who goes for which way. It depends on how it's sold to them, I believe.
6: I just want to say I agree with that, that there are, uh, you know, there's a reason why some people join the Marines and some people join the Coast Guard. You know, it's just there's a personality. There's, There's a reason why there's Jim Elliott and Brooks and Zane who are just going to crazy places. There's a certain way God has wired them to be able to do that to where, you know, if you call people up and say things like, it's going to be hard, you're going to have the people stand up and go, that's what I want. And then you're going to have people that are going to say, that's not really for me. I've got health issues. I've got these five concerns that I need to work through for three years. And then they end up not going. Um, So it's part of that. It's just a wiring. I think of how God wires people and their passion and their ability to be flexible and their handling of culture, willingness to be single, um, all these things that kind of combine together to give you a Brooks, you know, to give you a Jim Elliot, to give you a Zane, to give you a John, give you a Matt, and then you know, me and Paul, are, you know, we're a little different, you know. It's just, and that's okay. Uh, how God's wired us, um, and how God's wired our families, and so you know, we can recruit differently for different people to go where God has them to go.
0: That's an interesting point because as another non-missionary, and I'll I'll join the Darren and Paul side of things, and Scott can go with all of the other veteran missionaries on that side of the panel. But there is an interesting point there with how much of this boils down to the analogy of the body of Christ. And there's hands and there's feet and there's kneecaps and there's eye sockets and there's every part of that body Um, but you wouldn't talk to every member of the body uh, in the same way. Is is it really that or is that reducing it too much? Is there a really deep-rooted methodological and exegetical difference here that we gloss over if we make it that kind of analogy? Because I do think that that is an important thing, that we have to have a strong... Um, for lack of a better term, recruiting and mobilizing message, calling people to come and die. But we also have to have enough nuance mixed in with that where we recognize most people ordinarily God calls to stay put in their current context and be faithful to Him in the context of their job, their family, their neighborhood. So what do you guys have to say about that? I'll just throw that out to
2: anyone who wants to respond. One of the things we've found in recruiting people is that in some ways it's almost easier to recruit the, the special forces types. Um, it's, they, it already has occurred to them they have a role in this. Um, on the other hand, there are places where, you know, we need an agriculturalist who's going to be able to get in over there, or we need an engineer, or we need an accountant. And most of those people have no concept that they could potentially have a role in in the Great Commission. Mm-hmm. And so we found that, yes, a lot of our stuff is naturally going to draw in the folks who say, I will I will pay whatever price God asks to take the gospel where it's never been before. Uh, but then we also at the same time sort of in parallel are reaching out to others saying you may not realize that it takes more than one type of person to do this job. And you may very well have gifts, have training, have credentials that will fill in part of the puzzle that others just just can't. Also, given the fact that most of the places that most need the gospel are places that you cannot go as a traditional missionary, uh, some form of of, um, multiple competency may very well be needed anyway. So I really do like the analogy of the body the analogy of spiritual gifting, because there's a lot of different kinds of people who are needed to do this task.
5: Hmm. I'll a-
3: say one thing real quick. I, I agree very much with the analogy of the body. I think it's evident in scripture too. You've got Titus and Timothy who go to Crete and go to Ephesus. They follow up where Paul went But again, Paul saw a distinction between his role and their role. And I think this is what gets the American church into trouble so much is that they call everyone missionaries. And when everyone's a missionary, no one's a missionary. And I think that's Mm -hmm. the thing that we have to be careful of in our zeal to protect the kneecaps and the shins and the other parts of the body that are so needed. Let's not misidentify them just to give them this false sense of elevation. We're all needed in this task. But when everybody's a missionary, it really actually the biggest loser is the Great Commission.
0: Yeah, if everyone is to foot, then no one's actually a foot. If you redefine every member of the body, then what do the feet exactly exist to do? I think that's a fantastic point. And that actually segues perfectly to, gentlemen, we need to talk about the current coronavirus pandemic and how that affects the picture for missions. And I want to do that. But first, we're going to take another quick break and hear from our sponsors. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. has been serving the church as it obeys the Great Commission. What started in Asia with one missionary grew into a global movement. Today, ABWE helps nearly 500 like-minded gospel-centered churches equip and send ambassadors for Christ to the ends of the earth. disciple-making, planting healthy churches, and training national leaders. Church is called to make disciples of all nations.
9: Join us. Radius is about reaching unreached people groups. When you go to a, a culture that's a different language than yours, Almost certainly you're ending up in a kind of majority language that's been reached. And there are other peoples still more hidden that relate to that majority language. And it's those people who are often almost entirely unreached. And they take more sustained cross-cultural effort. Is there a way we can better train people so that they will be able to have more realistic expectations of what life is like in the kind of two steps away from my culture and be able to sustain family life with its normal difficulties there so that there can be a long years and or even decades long witness in that culture. And it seems like Radius is set up to try to provide that training. I find
3: it hard to express this but The brief time of the last two years that I've had in contact with Radius has been a signal moment, actually, in my Christian life for myself and my wife Joan. But to see young lives gladly giving themselves to decades of language study, language acquisition, culture acquisition knowing that it may take 5, 10, 15 years before they can meaningfully set before this language group the grace and love of God in Jesus Christ. That's just been very moving for me, and I regularly am thankful to God for the privilege of having a little contact with Radius.
9: I would just encourage any pastor who's listening to this, pray if the Lord would not have a couple in your church or maybe a single man or a single woman who you'd think, yeah, at least get them to go on a radio station. Maybe your church sponsor it and see what they think. And don't, don't send, you know, your most awkward people. You know, send, send your best people who might, who might survive the two sort of cultural sonic booms getting across to, to reach those people who, who don't know the Lord. They, they haven't heard the gospel. Uh, and you might have a couple in your church who could be a key for that group in the gospel. <laughs>
2: To address
0: as we dive into the issue of different members of the body of Christ. Some are goers, some are senders, some stay, some partner. There's all sorts of different ways that we see the whole body working together to accomplish the Great Commission. However, you define who the nations are. We know ultimately the task requires everybody to be involved in some way. uh, But we, we have to call out the elephant in the room and the elephant in the room is the fact that many of us are sequestered, not only to our homes, but also to our current
1: geographic countries. Right, Scott? Yeah. And I was going to make a comment earlier. Just, I think we're seeing a little bit of how much our churches are, re- are are reflecting our culture in the sense that are, we have a culture that's adrenaline junkies and we have a church churches in evangelicalism that are adrenaline junkies. And we can't imagine Doing ministry when our ministry is reduced to prayer, like, um, (laughs) you you know, we're great at running out to the hospitals if we could, but we can't do anything like that. So, what are pastors going to do now? Well, when God calls you to, well, stay at home and pray more. uh, We struggle with that. And Paul, I'm wondering, you know, you're engaging with churches all the time um, as as a leader of a mission agency. How are churches, from your perspective in America, responding to the needs around the world? So, what is how are churches that are that are trying to deal with this crisis in their own backyard thinking or not thinking about the needs around
5: the world? What are you seeing? Yeah, I'll talk about what I see happening, but also what I see not happening. If I can go there, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think every church is reevaluating their ecclesiology, and um, like it or not, the American church has been tied to buildings. Uh, for a long, long time. And our ecclesiology revolves around, we even talk about like methodologies flowing from the the buildings, you know, an attractional model. And, um, and I think churches and pastors and leaders are reevaluating their ecclesiology. How do we do church when we don't have a building? How do we be the church when we uh, don't have a building? And, uh, I know those conversations are taking place. And, um, and so they're rethinking and they're doing different things. We all know the technology, that that's being used. Um, and I, I see them uh, trying to reach out to their missionaries and reach out to their community through technology. And I think that's happening. One of the things that isn't happening, and uh, I may open up a can of worms here, the is, uh, um, is short-term missions. Um, that's not happening. And, um, uh, it's interesting to me. Um, and I was thinking about this this morning, you know, one of the things that, um, uh, they tell you in the stock market is when there's volatility in the stock market, you need to, uh, kind of move to quality. Right. And, uh, the idea is moving from volatile stocks to quality stocks. And, um, it's interesting to me that, uh, um, Volatile missions would be short term missions here. And uh, I'm not bashing short term missions, but um, I, I think there's a move to quality in that um, who are the missionaries that are still engaged? Where is their ministry still going on? Uh, it's places where there are long term missionaries who have devoted decades of their life to cultural and language acquisition and they're pouring their lives those are the people that are still there still engaged in ministry still active those are the people that churches are seeing and and able to communicate with and uh, and connect with with partners and and um, you know I don't know if anyone's doing any short term missions at all um, but uh, that's just been an interesting dynamic that uh, uh, that I'm seeing and so um I think a conversation about ecclesiology and how our methodology flows from our ecclesiology is taking place. And, uh, and I think a, a fleet to quality or a move to, to quality, so to speak. And that's just an analogy. I'm not throwing stones. Alex, are you seeing
1: uh, applicants still, still flowing to missions during this time? Uh, so those others of you who run mission agencies, are you still having people applying? Or has that dried up? Yeah, I, you know, speaking as director of advancement and
0: mobilization for ABWE, um, we've obviously seen a a bottoming out of a lot of interest in certain tracks. But the thing with short term is short term trips week long, two week long, three week long tend to be recurring throughout the calendar year. So we still have people that are asking and that are interested about those things. And we've not really seen that much of a slump in long-term interest. Interestingly, what we've seen is a slump in midterm interest, um, which is similar to the uh, apprentice track, maybe that the IMB would offer sort of that you know trial term, that, that one to four year type of role uh, where the intention is to pursue longer term. And I think the reason for some of that drop-off is because there's the um, the ambiguity of, you don't know when you're gonna leave for the field, but also the the length of the commitment. With, with long-term, you say, okay, at some point in the future, I'll go to the field and stay there indefinitely. And then with short-term, you're saying, well, okay, I know this trip is gonna happen, not this year, but it's gonna happen in 2021. But midterm is requiring you to step away from life for a period of years. Um, potentially, but you're not sure when that's going to happen. So we've seen that slump off. And then we've seen also a major slump off in the medical missions interest and in healthcare workers going overseas. And so that's been difficult, but it's not at crisis level yet. It's not at fever pitch. It's still within the realm of normal market fluctuations to use Paul's analogy. I really want to hear from Darren too. Darren has been the guy, again, the provocateur, we'll say it again in this episode, but the provocateur who's publicly criticized short-term missions. And then also, runs an organization that exists to send short-term missionaries. Darren, what are you seeing?
6: I'm not the only one here with controversial views, and uh, you're the only I, one who loves I, it. I, no, I'm just saying. I don't know. Uh, I love it. Bro- Brooks uh, Brooks has a lot of biblical views about churches and mission, and that's controversial. So, uh, um, you know, the, the quarantine. Uh, I mean, it's impacting the global church in a lot of ways, you know, these ch- rural churches getting locked down in India and in Liberia where you can't get food and people are starving and churches are trying to help money's drying up because money's not being brought into the country. Uh, there's, uh, like Pakistan, there's, there's a BBC article about all the Muslims, how generous they're being, but not to the Christians, not helping the Christians in any way. And they're not getting government help. So, uh, You know, on the U.S. mission side of thing, which is really a narrow kind of group, uh, you know, I've been thinking about it in terms of the mission impact and the money impact and those overlap. But uh, I mean, on the money side of things, you know, I like I would expect a 20 percent, 30 percent drop in giving to happen to most mission agencies, but not to feel it until quarter four or early next year. And that's because people are going to rather cut off their arm than not stop and then stop supporting a mission missionary or a missions org. But you're just going to people if people don't have jobs. Uh, they're not going to give. And if you are a, if you're a mission agency that is primarily a high skill worker, high tech, you might survive. But if you're a if you're a labor worker, service workers, donors, your, your mission agency is in trouble. Short term missions has paused stopped uh completely and we're about to get a case study on whether that will affect mobilization or not everyone says that short-term missions is the key to mobilization long-term whether that's true or not is up for debate but it's about to not be Um, even if the u.s and this is part of the thing for u.s agencies even if the u.s opens up in recurring waves that doesn't mean international travel will and so you've got missionaries who are about to go, who are still stuck, sold their house, bought the plane tickets, and now they're here in the U.S. Or missionaries who are trained, want to go. Everything's just kind of getting pushed back. And, uh, you know, the mission side of thing, even for TOI, I mean, uh, you know, we've got enough work for a couple months on the back end, but... If we can't travel internationally for 12 to 18 months, that's we're looking at a radical redefinition of what we do as an organization. You know, short term missions is a $1.6 billion enterprise in the U S and it's now a $0 enterprise. And we're going to, we're going to see the, the ramifications of that really in January, February, after year-end giving happens, Lottie Moon giving happens, all these things uh, when there's not as much money. And uh, that's just being realistic. And uh, I talk to missionaries. They're very optimistic about their supporters. Uh, but even at, I went through just people who support me, and 50% of them are insecure in their job right now. And many of them have already lost their job, so they they don't have money coming in they can't give, so it's going to be significant, and uh, we'll feel it in six months to nine months from now
1: how are you especially you know those of you who are in leadership roles or training roles? how are you seeing your agencies adapting um, how are you seeing other mission agencies adapting what are what are the innovations that are that are taking place now? or that you expect to take place, if this continues on, that could be uh, game changers?
2: Let me um, speak to sort of both sides of of the field, uh, home equation. In terms of stuff on the home, by the way, we had Barna Group do a uh, a study for us on the impact of short-term missions on both giving and going. And the results that came back to us were that people who have been on a short-term mission trip on ab- are twice as likely to end up as long-term missionaries and on average give four times more to missions than those who have not. So certainly the suspension of short-term missions is going to have an impact on all of us um, kind, of, kind of down the road. Another significant factor, we've been monitoring, at least within, within our denominational circles, uh, giving to churches. And the average right now seems to be that giving is between 50 and 65% of normal right now uh, to churches during this time when people aren't actually attending churches. And obviously what affects our churches affects everything affects all of us Mm -hmm. sort of downstream from that. So that's certainly going to have an an impact on a lot of things. And so I know for our part, uh, we have all been sent back to our budgets to, um, sort of sort of do triage on, on what we get rid of first, which is, which is never a fun uh, experience. In terms of missions applications, uh, we're holding pretty steady. Um, I might add that for us, actually, midterm is our midterm applicants are up. And we think part of that is because many of our midterm, our two to three year people, are folks who are graduating from college, don't have a job, uh, we're planning to go overseas anyway, figure by the time they actually come to orientation, this whole thing will be over. And so I am interviewing 44 candidates for midterm service next week, um, virtually, obviously. But um, uh, our long term is taking a slight slump not a big one, j- j- just just a slight one uh, in, in that time. Overseas, what we're seeing is for the most part, our workers are are hunkering down, uh, complying with whatever are the requirements in their area, which is, which is anything from what we, the relative freedom we enjoy in most of this country to places where literally um, you leave the house, you will be arrested. Um, and that's also making uh, any sort of movement difficult. What I've been encouraged by is that, bizarrely enough, social media exists in places where most modern amenities don't. And so I, I, I literally have in my mind from one of the countries I have worked in, uh, the image of a billboard of a guy in in a turban with an AK-47 slung over his shoulder, sitting on his camel, talking on a cell phone, and um, that sort of thing actually happens. And our folks have taken to social media to share the gospel and to disciple believers in incredible ways. Um, and so we're seeing that as the way that people are. Uh, taking advantage of the time one of the things we've seen in a lot of cases i mean we our own approach is in a situation like that if someone wants to leave then it's no harm no foul that's that's fine if they want to stay same way and um, uh, those who stay when people know they could leave have incredibly enhanced credibility with the Mm. community around them uh, you, you went through this with us. We'll listen to you. Uh, we experienced that in a in a small way when uh, they cut the heat off in our neighborhood um, in Central Asia uh, with snow on the ground outside. We didn't move out. We stayed, and we saw our first fruit for the gospel at the end of that winter. Uh, and we're seeing that around the world that people are saying, "You're you're not leaving. You're you're sticking with us." And there is is incredible
6: benefit to that I'll just mention we've seen an uptick in applications as well I think people just have a lot of time to think about their life and uh, evaluate what they're doing and uh, yeah I mean we've we've seen maybe a 50% increase in short-term and long-term applications
7: I hope, just adding to, to some of that, I hope one of the things that, that we do ultimately see, and, and we do a lot with, uh, with short-term training, and, and that's good stuff. I mean, um, not so different from TLI, and, and, uh, but we're also placing people on the ground. And I, I hope this, just, this becomes a, um, really kind of a, a, a call, a, a, a moment where people really think deeply about going and investing in a place the best training we can do is in language. It's not through translators. So the more people we have on the ground, the more powerful the training, the better the discipleship, um, things like that. I'd also just echo um, what Zane was saying. Our people on the ground, I've been talking to each one of them, and it's just been amazing. The, the things that they're doing, the way that they're adjusting um, makes me feel guilty when I get antsy in the freedoms that I have here. Um, compared to what they've got, but the way that they use social media, the way that they're praying, the way they're preparing, um, the way that they're even teaching online in different places uh, is is just phenomenal. So it's exciting to see what the Father's doing through this time, in which hopefully we do do some reevaluation, we do some reorganizing, and uh, and we refocus on uh, on the work that the Lord's given us to do.
3: Radius is kind of this anomaly in that we're not a, uh, institution. We're not a seminary or a Bible school. We're not a sending agency. The sending agencies come and they recruit our students. And so we're in this middle ground in both of our schools. You've got Radius Asia, which is in Taichung. And that's for, that's all in Mandarin. And then you've got Radius international, which is in Mexico. And so both schools are still going, uh, albeit with some modifications, We were expanding into a couple different places that's kind of been put on hold, but applications have stayed about the same. One of the things that we're hearing from our graduates, though, is that some of the things that we're doing, I would say we're able to do in North America. Social distancing is a luxury. Social distancing does not happen in a lot of locations. And then you've got shelter in place that implies that you have a home and that you've got enough food to actually live and to wait this thing out and then face masks and, all these other things, like a lot of these places where you're on the furthest edge of things, those things are luxuries that a lot of them do not have, especially in the general population. And so to view quarantine and to view these things through North American eyes is a very different animal. And I, I saw Darren write a post on Facebook. Man, my, my fear is for some of these different camps and some of these different population centers where you've got some real potential for some serious human damage, some real pain to be felt and to have your people on the front edges of that learning the language, getting into these communities. I mean, those are going to be things that we'll wrestle with. I don't think coronavirus's lethality is going to be that much to where it's going to affect a lot of our expat missionaries or the Asian missionaries going over, but it it will have a dramatic effect, I think, on some of these, especially refugee populations. And I, I think we better brace ourselves for some of that. Hopefully it doesn't happen. Maybe there's some things in the wind. I know there's a lot of question marks as far as coronavirus goes and how it adapts in tropical environments and certain things that happen. But yeah, hopefully by God's grace, many people are spared, but we'll see.
6: I
1: want to ask a question about risk. Um, and, and John, you know, I'm going to start with you. You understand risk. Uh, you served in a risky place yourself. You work with immigrants uh, that come from places at risk They're in Louisville. Um, uh, many of your missionaries, uh, with, um, reaching and teaching work in places with substandard health care. What do you say to the pastor, um, who's questioning the risks of sending a young family from his church into the mission field right now?
7: Well, I I appreciate that, Scott. I don't know that I understand risk. I I haven't faced risk like so many others have. I, I feel a little strange. Um, I mean, we have brothers and sisters all over the world who really face risk and the intensity of that risk. But what I would say is that, uh, the workers, as they go overseas, they've always faced risk. Um, the coronavirus is a risk, um, but it's not so distinct from so many other risks that, through the the centuries, our, our missionaries have have faced as as they've, as they've gone out, um, you know, yellow fever and dinghy. And, you know, there's so many different diseases that missionaries suffered with. And, and you think about those early pioneer missionaries that that went with their caskets and their boats as, as they never even thought about returning home. And, and, uh, you know, we, we got home every three years. It, it just, you know, we got on the plane and, and, and here we are. So, you know, I, I think that, yeah, there, there's there's risk, but there is risk to a lot of things that we do. And, and we don't want to run um, just because there's risk, right? Um, we want to mitigate risk. We want to think clearly. Um, we want to to measure response. And, uh, um, and, and going back to what, what Matt said about students, you know, this is one of the things that, that we try and do with our missionaries and, and I try and do with my students is, is make sure that their sending church really understands what it is that they're doing and who they are. Right? So one of the things that that we do is we insist that the sending church do a full evaluation of that, that person who's going out. um, And, and in some ways measuring some of those risk factors as well, is this a good place or is this not a good place for this person? Um, Even physically, is this the right place for them? Is it the right place for them with their children? I, I think, that uh, sometimes that's an important question as well. If I'm taking a a 13 year old girl to the Middle East for the very first time, I might need to evaluate some things and make sure that's the best place for my family at that particular time. So I think that there are questions that that we should ask, but we sure don't want to run. From from risk, we know that God is calling people to Himself. That God has ordained us to be His ambassadors, Second Corinthians five, and and that it is through the church and it's through His ambassadors that He calls people to Himself. So, we we don't want to run away from the opportunities God is giving to us. We want to run towards them, but we want to measure that response and do it in a way that is most appropriate and most glorifying. to to the Father. I've seen people who who go with kind of a martyr complex and a martyr complex isn't a healthy complex. Um, I want people to think through where they're going. I want them to think about what it is that they're going to face. What does it mean to raise my kids in this place? What does it mean to live in this place? But man, there are some amazing places in the world as you well know, Scott, that um, are, are a pleasure to live in that are difficult and, and where the, the peoples are hard, but, but what a, a glorious thing. To, to have the privilege of taking the gospel to those places. so I have not I,
6: heard per, I have not heard personally of many many missionaries leaving the field unless they are forced in this case in like in Serbia you were kicked out all the missionaries were kicked out of Serbia uh, by order but in other countries they have not been and they're just quarantined at home in the, in a major city uh, uh, going out for food like we would here in in Minnesota and uh, or in in the US if they can. Um, it's those national partners that live in, you know, Monrovia who are just like, you know, or rural India are just like. There's no such thing as social distancing. That's that's where you you see it really where the struggle is going to be, and in refugee camps.
0: Darren, you mentioned the issue of national partners, and that's something that I think we forget about, is a lot of people, pastors, might be thinking, all right, well, we're all on lockdown, there's global travel bans, therefore we can't send missionaries. And that assumes this it's from the West to the rest model of missions, rather than Christian pockets existing throughout the world, sending to their near neighbors and their neighbors afar. Paul, if I can direct a question towards you, uh, national partnerships is something we care a lot about at ABWE. Uh, our live global division, but how are you seeing them, and how are you seeing others specifically prioritize ways of serving nationals who are already living and ministering and serving on the field? And maybe that doesn't mean that we can go and send short-termers to support them right now, but maybe that means that churches can be praying for uh, those partners, supporting them financially, adopting unreached people groups, and thinking more about the people that are already locked into those places geographically because that's their home.
5: Yeah, I think times like this really help us to see as the Western Church, we need partnerships. Um, That uh, the Great Commission wasn't given to the Western Church. The Great Commission was given to the body of Christ. And um, our our teammates and our partners and our friends and our co-laborers for Christ around the globe um, uh, are, are busy during this time, you know, Uh, anecdotally I know that uh, our team are connecting regularly with our national partners and they are very much in the same boat that we are many of them are hunkered down in different places and um, but they are in places where the needs become more desperate and I know we have been uh, sending aid to um, some of our uh, teammates that are in regions and places that uh, hunger becomes a big issue right now. Um, and, uh, there's no schools. So there are large numbers of children. And, um, we've talked about, there's no social distancing in these places. And so, uh, the needs are becoming more acute. And, uh, so we're seeing communication is uh, happening at a greater, uh, level. Um, Places that were already vulnerable uh, are becoming more vulnerable. Um, places that uh, were secure, you know, they're, they're hunkering down um, as they are. We are seeing neat anecdotal stories of ways that technology are being used and and uh, engagement with people who wouldn't normally enter the door of a church or um, get involved in a, in a Bible study uh, who will talk on the phone or will engage in some of the need-based uh, opportunities. So this is actually opening doors for the gospel um, as A, uh, our partners become more creative, like we're having to become more creative, or B, uh, the needs become more acute.
0: And we'll talk a little bit more about Live Global and their people group initiative at the end of the broadcast, but that would be a good opportunity. Scott, I know you had a question for Brooks. Their whole emphasis is on unreached peoples at this time. Clearly,
1: coronavirus changes that whole approach, I would imagine. Well, you know, my question is, is about... You know what are the difficulties that this is going to create? You know your ministry, Brooks, is about training missionaries for the least reach and hardest to reach. Um, You know I've been on your campus; I I know what you guys are, what how you're challenging them to think. This is a good test, I'm sure of that. Um, But what do you think are some of the biggest obstacles in getting churches to lean into this? Um, Obviously, you're dealing with students that are coming out of churches. Are you concerned um, about this? You concerned that this is going to make the task of reaching Um, unreached people groups and hidden peoples even harder. Um, I, I'll touch the church one second, but I I think I
3: just finished writing an article yesterday. It's going to come out on Friday on how coronavirus is actually a big help to missionary training. It's a tremendous preview of the life ahead in that there is uncertainty wrapped around getting the gospel to the last unreached language groups of this earth. And there's incredible certainty that everything good and everything that's challenging comes from the hand of a God who loves us and who has ordained every detail down to the last little bit of our lives. And so... I were privileged to keep training the students down at Radius right now. I think this is going to be one of our best classes because they've had to go through coronavirus and going through it in a foreign country as a foreigner and see the rice and the beans and the lines start to shrivel up and the borders start to contract and things start to go sideways. And the guys in Radius Asia, their Indonesian language helpers are the ones carrying it predominantly. And this, all these little details make better missionaries. This is actually
1: a really big help to training missionaries. Mm-hmm. I don't think... Are parents pressuring the kids to come home, or are you not getting that? No, we're actually, pressure?
3: Get, we're actually getting a little bit more of the opposite. Hey, keep them there, because we have a campus where they're kind of held in. We can quarantine fairly tightly, and most parents are more nervous about the travel, getting them from a foreign country back to their homes than they're concerned about them getting it there. There are a handful uh, that we are... Watching very closely, but it's radius is a different animal, and that we're not going to throw caution to the wind but anything that can give them a live fire exercise we're very interested in that and coronavirus gives us something that we couldn't duplicate we couldn't actually bring this in without incurring some massive risk I think the the threats to the church I don't think coronavirus is going to It'll hurt financially, as guys have talked about, but I think the dangers in the church engaging in the Great Commission are way bigger than coronavirus. I think bad ecclesiology, not understanding the price that's going to need to be paid for those last language groups, I think those are much bigger concerns than coronavirus. I think the money, God will find a way to fund his ambassadors and get them over there. There will always be people that will step up in the most dire of times, I'm always encouraged. I'm reading John Payton's memoirs right now, or his biography as guys were trying to talk him out of heading to the new Hebrides. You'll be eaten by cannibals. And he's telling them, and listen, you're, An elderly saint was telling him this and he said, you're a few years possibly away from dying and worms will be eating you. And someday, whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms, we're both going to rise with the same glorious body at the resurrection. And so fear and getting this through, this is actually a help to us in many ways if we can look at it that way. That's obviously from a training side. From another aspect, I can see how this could very much be a deterrent financially. That, I, I think those are short-term deterrents. I think the ecclesiology and the lack of understanding of what it will take; those are the two bigger issues still in the North American church today.
1: So I'm a, I'm going to pitch it back to you guys. But I'm a dad, you know. And it was, I thought about things one way when my kids were little, but now my daughter's 20. She's the same age as. Uh, Timothy, Paul Jones, daughter, who's in the hospital with COVID-19, uh, you know, I know some of you, Paul's you, you have a son the same age and, uh, and it's, it's funny how your heart changes a little bit. Like I just wanted my daughter home. Like I just want her home. Like she's willing to take risk. I'm less, even though I'm, I was, I thought I was more willing to risk her life, but I'm not. And, uh, and, and so, you know, I'm, I'm curious, those of you who are in training, Um, And even with the rest of us, you know, what, what word do we give to to dads like me? Um, What words do we give to our church Um, to lean into what God has called us to do, not lean away um, in the, in the face of a little bit of, of a fear or risk, Um, Matt and John, and then I would love to have the rest of you uh, share your opinions or even, even any last comments about this.
4: Yeah, I don't have anything super profound to say beyond the gospel is worth it. And I just think the more we can call people to consider what we're asking for, the more perspective is given to the task. Like any place that we're going to be sending people that is lacking a church has its own dangers. And so if we are ambitious and if we prize the gospel to the degree that it should evoke that sort of ambition in us, uh, I think that's just part of the part of the reality that we're embracing. The gospel's worth it. It's going to bring about its own set of unique dangers. And we hold that out unblushingly saying, look, there's an eternity that's been promised. The the eschatology that Zane's talking about, it is encouraging and the gospel is precious and there's places where it hasn't taken root. So let's go.
7: I I don't know what I would add either other than to say, Scott, you're, I know your daughter and she's amazing. So, Um, you know, God's going to do some amazing things through her and, and that might not be the easiest thing for a dad. We want to be protective of our children, but at the same time, God didn't give them to us to not release them. And you know that, I mean, I'm not, I, it sounds when you, when you couch it in your personal terms, it makes it a little bit harder, but, um, just like each one of us, a a number of us went to, to different places in the world, uh, our parents weren't, they were excited yet. They weren't excited. Right. Um, and it's the same thing for our kids. I, I, uh, I want to see my kids just just glorify God with their lives. That's, that's all I want to see. And whatever form that takes, man, I want to hold an open hand and allow God to do what he wants to do with them. And I, I know that, that you're the same, Scott. So I'm not worried about that. But, but I, I think that's the, the thing, right? The, these kids, God has created, God has called, God has gifted, and now God will, will take them to the nations. And I look forward to seeing them do amazing things through the power of, of the Spirit.
5: And when I was, when I was younger and discipling teenagers, um, as a youth pastor, I had a brand new guitar that I bought. And, um, as it got passed around from kid to kid, to kid, to kid, to kid, to kid um, the, it was destroyed. And, uh, this wonderful, super expensive, it was probably $200, super expensive guitar, um, <laughs> You know, just got passed around. Everybody wanted to touch it and play with it and and break a string on it and scratch it up. And I look at that guitar today and it brings joy to my heart because every scratch, every ding, every um, gash in that guitar um, is a story of ministry that took place. And uh, I think we need to encourage those that are young who are going into missions, but also those who are finishing and are thinking about going into missions, that there are going to be gashes and there are going to be scratches and there are going to be bumps. And you know what? Um, You will face abuse and persecution and hardship and loneliness and you'll face all of it. But I think when we stand before the Lord, um, He will communicate to us the same joy that I experience when I look at all the gashes on those guitars that um that it, it glorified the Lord and it brought glory to the Lord and, and uh so when Matt says it's worth it, um uh, the gospel itself is worth it. But I think even the experience that we will experience standing before the Lord will be worth it as as we see all of the ways that God used the gashes and the imperfections and the scratches. Uh, to
2: hone our lives and to glorify his name. When, when I uh, told my mom that God had called me overseas, her comment was, that's not fair. It's the one thing that as a mother I don't like, but as a Christian I can't object to. And I did remind her that she had led me to the Lord, and so it was actually all her fault, which she didn't appreciate. But um, the thing that... We tell people is just to remember that safety is an illusion anywhere. I mean, you, you guys are aware of the countries that I have lived in. The closest I've ever come to getting killed is right here in Virginia in a car accident. Um th- the fact is that all of us are going to live short lives compared to eternity. And the God doesn't promise us safety on the mission field, He doesn't promise us safety here. That's, that's, that's the reality of it. And so the thing to do is to spend the life he gives you in something that's worth losing your life for. And this is worth it. I just go back to that same refrain, it's worth it. And I not only don't regret the life he, he gave us, but my, I, I find genuinely in my heart, my greatest desire, I have, I have two kids in their 20s. One's married and has just recently given me my first grandchild. And my earnest desire is to see them on the front lines of the gospel. And if that means I see him less, then it's it's still worth it. That's still part of uh, the price he calls us to pay, but it's it's just worth it. And that's what I tell people. And I can't imagine anything worse than not engaging your life in things that matter eternally, in whatever manner he's called you to do that. So as, as a dad, now as a grandfather, my yearning and desire is to see that for, for my kids and grandkids.
0: Well, one of the things that is critically important right now, too, is that we think those of us who are making disciples in our own lives, serving in our churches, how do we advance the cause of the gospel among unreached peoples during this particular time that's so challenging with us in our homes, but then beyond that? And one of the ways that we think is critical to do that through one of our sponsors, Live Global, uh, which is the ministry division of ABWE that's focused on advancing the gospel through national partnerships. There. Unreached People Groups initiative, and that's liveglobal.org slash unreached. But through adopting an unreached people group with Live Global, $2,500. Now, if you think about it, that can be an incredibly difficult investment for an individual. But for a church, that's less than what you would probably take up in a typical Sunday morning offering. Uh, And sometimes you're even able to do that online. So for those of you who are leading churches and leading churches online, uh, that cost can cover the translation of a gospel tract. It can cover a team of nationals who would be equipped to take that newly translated tract into the language of an unreached people group that's been identified where ABWE already has long-term partners on the field ministering to some of these people, and it would cover all of the costs of continuing and beginning a long-term ministry there so that as your church adopts that people group, begins to pray for them intentionally, and all of those costs are covered, that over time, maybe it's in a year, maybe it's in three or five years, that that uh, church would be able to send a long-term missionary to that people group. So it's an incredibly exciting opportunity. You can go to liveglobal.org/unreached. That URL will be underneath me right now. Liveglobal.org/unreached. Well, we want to thank all of our panelists for joining us here today. And if you want to get more content on missions, theology, and practice, go to missionspodcast.com. From there, you can also subscribe to us in Apple Podcasts, in Google Play, in Stitcher, or Spotify. Whatever your favorite platform is, remember to share this content and get the word out to those who need to hear it most and be equipped. And you can follow us every week for more content every Sunday night. And it premieres Monday morning, the missions podcast. Thank you for listening to us today and we'll see you next
2: week.